Welcome, welcome one and all to this New Mexico in Focus podcast. I'm your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at NMPBS in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And if you uh, get sick of hearing me during these podcasts, you're in for bad news this week. In all seriousness, I know a lot of uh, workplaces are dealing with a similar situation, but our host, Gene Grant, had a COVID exposure this week and was feeling a little under the weather. Hopefully, he'll be back next week. But in the meantime, it was me in the host chair this week for the show, so you're going to hear my voice a lot more than usual. A busy, busy week, as it always is, second, third week of January, because the legislative session starts And it all kicks off with the governor's state of the state address. Want to let you know we live streamed that on Tuesday of this week, January 18th. We also had immediate reaction from some folks online. And most importantly, journalists from across the state took time out to offer some contextual footnotes, some annotations to the speech to give you a little more background on what the governor laid out in her state of the state address. It was an unusual one again this year because of COVID-19. Normally she would give the state of the state directly to lawmakers on the floor of the House of Representatives. But uh, again, out of an abundance of caution, she did it instead from her office. So it is much shorter and uh, not as much of the pomp and circumstances we are used to. We are going to, uh, again, have a link in this show description to all those elements I mentioned. So if you want to watch the speech in its entirety, you can. That initial reaction that we did on Facebook Live, as well as the annotated speech. This is all part of our Your NM Government project, partnership with KUNM Radio. We appreciate all the journalists from across the state who helped us out with that. And we hope it's a good service to you. Now we're going to dive into some of the key themes of uh, the governor's speech and her priority list for this legislative session. It's a short one, just 30 days, with a heavy focus on the budget. That's priority number one, two, and three. But we know the governor has some other things she hopes the legislature will take up over the next three weeks. We're going to kick things off with uh, really what she kicked her speech off with, which was the uh, opportunity and time we have with a budget of over $8 billion. We are flush with cash, more flush than we have ever been. And she wants lawmakers to think bold about spending when we have this opportunity and uh, looking for opportunities to make everyone's life better. And so we're going to hear a clip about that. And right after that, you'll hear from our line opinion panel this week, which is a great group. We have Crystal Ciarza of Ciarza Digital. We also have Julianne Grimm, editor and publisher of the Santa Fe Reporter. And we welcome for the first time Adrian Hedden. He is a reporter, covers environmental issues at the Carlsbad Current Argus. So lots of great perspective here, again, on our flush coffers and how we should approach that. right now unimaginable financial resources at our disposal. I believe we can fulfill once and for all, after 110 years of statehood, the destiny of New Mexico as a genuine homestead of the American dream, a place where people can grow and thrive and live in peace and prosperity, where people have the resources they need to support themselves and their families, 
What we do here now, what we do in the coming weeks, will set the stage. Dating back decades, a timid mindset has afflicted people in this Capitol building, a pessimism that can be self-fulfilling. Thinking small is a curse. Big and meaningful changes are possible, but the biggest change may be our attitude, our perspective. At a moment in time when we have the money to do it all, let's not limit ourselves. Let's not be unnecessarily incremental. Can't New Mexico be a state? Can't we be the state where everything, anything is possible? So on that note, let's give every single educator in this state a 7% raise this year minimum. That would be the biggest pay bump in recent memory and it would put us first in the region for average educator pay. They deserve it and we can afford it and it's the right thing to do. Let's also raise the starting salaries for every tier of educators, which means some teachers will see a 20% raise this year. And let me be clear, this kind of progress pays for itself. When we support educators, when we retain high quality teachers and keep our schools brimming with talented professionals, our other strategic investments in New Mexico children and in public education are supported and sustained. Our graduation rates will continue to rise. Our literacy rates will continue to improve, especially with the targeted new phonics program that we have initiated and that the legislature must continue to support. We get more kids into high quality apprenticeship programs and institutions of higher learning that would help them build fulfilling careers and lives. It all starts with demonstrating support and respect for our educators. Day one, I said we would do that and we're getting it done. And we're going to keep going. Let's cut taxes for every single person in New Mexico. We haven't cut the sales tax in this state in 40 years. It's only gone up and up and up for decades, burdening New Mexico households and making it harder for our small businesses to be competitive. But under my tax cut proposal, New Mexicans would save more than $170 million every year. As my colleagues from across the aisle have pointed out in years past, correctly, that money doesn't belong in government accounts. It belongs in the pockets of hardworking New Mexicans. I agree, and I expect the legislature to prioritize this relief. I feel the same way about the taxes that are taken out of Social Security benefits. New Mexico is only one of a few states that taxes Social Security. I'm calling today for that taxation to end. We must unburden the New Mexicans who rely on Social Security benefits by cutting their taxes. This is good government serving the people who have asked us to serve them. New Mexicans deserve it because I believe we have an obligation to find ways to make life easier for the people of New Mexico. And I will keep looking for ways to do exactly that. In the last year, we're 11th best for job growth in the country overall. In three years, we have created over 10,000 jobs in every corner of our state, and those jobs now have an average salary better than $90,000 a year. That's a record high, 
And it's a big bright signal to other businesses, like the hundreds of businesses that have relocated here in the last three years, showing them how successful our public-private partnerships can be and how business-friendly New Mexico is. We're cutting red tape, and it is making a real difference for New Mexico business owners, unlike <clears throat> in the aftermath of the Great Recession. We're not going to let the pandemic stall us and take away years of growth. We will not have lost another decade. In fact, despite the challenges of the last two years, we've hardly lost a step. The fact is, unemployment has gone down every month for 10 straight months. The number of unemployed New Mexicans dropped by 5% in November alone. We're expanding our economic footprint into every single community. Legal cannabis is going to create thousands of jobs and serious tax revenue for local governments to support local services in every corner of our state. Almost 40,000 more students receiving high quality education for free under my Opportunity Scholarship Program means more skilled workers building 21st century careers right here in Roswell, Española, Sunland Park, Rio Rancho, Chama, and so many more. The intellectual infrastructure of a nationally competitive state economy is being built right here, right now, on campuses and in communities throughout our state. And clean hydrogen will support thousands of jobs, especially in rural New Mexico, while helping us sprint toward our net zero carbon deadlines and decarbonize the transportation sector. There's quite a bit to touch on in that clip. We'll unpack it all in a moment, but let's welcome in our line opinion panelists virtually. First today, hello to Julianne Grimm, editor and publisher at the Santa Fe Reporter, Crystal Ciarza, owner and CEO at Ciarza Social Digital, and new to the show, a warm welcome to Adrian Hedden, reporter at the Carlsbad Current Argus. Welcome to you all. Governor Michelle Luan Grisham clearly isn't shying away from spending, in fact, quite the opposite, saying the state has, quote, unimaginable resources and that thinking small is a curse. Before we get into the specifics, uh, Crystal, why don't we start with you? Initial thoughts on the speech, and do you think the legislature will follow her call for a change in attitude when it comes to that spending? Um, the speech itself was very well done. Um, there's definitely the key points and the personality of, of the governor that was on the presentation and the speech itself. Um, I found it really fascinating that, um, you know, the governor is actually one of those individuals that feeds very well off of the energy of people. And I felt like um, it, I couldn't have imagined how difficult this was to actually film rather than be in front of the legislators um, that she very much dearly cares about. Um, I think the, the key point and the starting topic, uh, which was education, she went right into it, um, you know, and we saw that in the clip, 7% um, in terms of teacher raises, making it a competitive uh, making it a competitive um, area um, to be a teacher for. Um, you know, this is something that we've all studied. This is not a new message in terms of giving teachers uh, raises. In fact, it happened in the beginning of her um, administration. But now we're actually talking about 
a certain number and a certain threshold that would be workable. And we also talked about the fact that she's trying to eliminate gross receipts tax. I think that's really fascinating. But I think the key thing that I took away from from all of the different pieces of the presentation off of the state of the state was that it's a really bipartisan message. And and every governor goes through this, especially for reelection, is making sure that you have that bipartisan um, unity on the conversation um, so that way you have a successful legislature. So, Julianne, let me follow up with you on that. Did this strike you more as a state of the state or a re-election speech? Oh, you're muted, Julianne. I'm so sorry about that. That's okay. Um, I think the state of the state is often like the pep talk, you know, the quarterback giving this, the rally speech, you know, heading into the big game. But I think we're going to talk about a, a clip later where the governor really tries to frame her agenda as not a conflict, not part of one particular team, but um, yeah, as this sort of, you know, uh, up the middle, we can all do this together kind of strategy. Um, I think it was very, um, there was an effort made for it to be concise. Uh, when you get Governor Lujan Grisham off script a little bit, she has a tendency to ramble and sort of start um, ideas and finish different ideas within the same sentence. And so I think that structurally, this was really easy, simple language that was meant to appeal to folks who might not have been following every turn of the screw on all of these issues. So, you know, broadly, that's what we saw. And again, relatively short compared to some previous states of the state. Um, and yeah, when it when it comes to the specifics in this segment, I think that there's broad support for teacher raises. There's broad support for not taxing Social Security. And I don't know that there are going to be very many arguments about lowering the state gross receipts tax um, so that we'll be more competitive on the average. Um, however, in places like Santa Fe and, and some other municipalities that have really ratcheted up their local option, um, you still are going to see a relatively high gross receipts tax rate, even with that state change. Right. Adrian, uh, again, welcome to the, to the group. Want to get your thoughts, especially from your part of the state there in the southeast corner of the state. Did some of these things we're talking about in terms of reaching across the aisle and having a positive attitude about the state as we try to come out of this pandemic, do you think how did that resonate with your quadrant of the state? Well, um, I think that uh, what she didn't say was pretty significant when it comes to climate change and environmental issues. Um, those are topics that draw a lot of criticism from an oil and gas region like ours when you're talking about greenhouse gas emission limits, uh, clean fuel standards, shifting to electric cars, that kind of thing. Um, I think that maybe she left that out to make it uh, more appealing to, to Republicans um, like I said, she mentioned nothing about climate change, and these are signature issues that she's touted, I think, throughout the administration. Um, we talked about the Energy Transition Act, um, trying to shift us away from a reliance economically on oil and gas. Um, these are all things that she has argued for, but to hear no mention of that um, sort of lends it to, to what you guys have been saying, that it was trying to maybe reach across the aisle and leave some of those controversial topics out of the speech. I, I wanted to add on to that, you know, Adrian, you had a really good point that it, it and, and also to to, you know, think about 
is that she's only has a 30 day session. And one of the things that uh, lobbyists are actually saying right now is that getting a message is actually really difficult for this administration this time around, especially for the 30 day. So I wouldn't even be surprised if she doesn't tackle those particular topics. Like lobbyists are not sweating right now, which normally they do, even as the session started. I think everybody's kind of had a, well, there's not gonna be much that's done unless it's the governor's agenda. Yeah, maybe she'll be leaving the environmental topics for for the next session. Uh, but there have been several bills that they've talked about and and touted as as main priorities. So it was interesting to not hear about that. That's what I was listening for. Yeah, personally. Crystal, a follow up to that point you just made though. Doesn't that run contrary to what you said earlier about this bipartisan message? Um, yeah, she does it, get to call the shots here, and she's got some things even that weren't really delved into deeply in the speech. The voting. Uh, reform that we know are priorities for her. She's she's still is driving this thing in many ways, right? Absolutely. You know, she is in leadership. She is obviously the executive branch of our government. So um, it, it it doesn't seem quite contrary though, because just because messages are a little bit or, or in in technical terms, uh, it, in order to get. Um, a bill considered to the governor um, at any point in point, point in point in time, just for sake of parliamentary procedure education, right? The a message has to be sent to the governor to say that you would like to actually discuss and debate this topic um, during this thirty day session. And so, yes, they, um, so going back to it doesn't even though she's calling the shots, yes, but I think that you know, with in terms of organizational management and leadership, we have to see what bills are actually going to be relevant, especially during the COVID nineteen pandemic. And that's another thing that was really fascinating about this. Entire presentation. She did not mention the pandemic all the way up until the end of the presentation. She didn't even bring about the fact that National Guardsmen are, are potentially being asked to go into schools at this point. She tried to avoid the pandemic problems like the plague in, in this, like in this speech. It was very fascinating. Yeah, like the pandemic. Like it was it was fascinating. It was very calculated. It was a very calculated set, uh, uh, state of the state address. And and I, I think that shorter time frame allowed for some of that, uh, and people kind of understood that. And it would be hard to carry a 45-minute speech by yourself without any interaction. Julianne, back on the, the financial outlook, I'm just curious your thoughts, because uh, former Lieutenant Governor Diane Dennis, when she was on with us on Tuesday right after the speech, mentioned how this year's budget, over $8 billion, is almost twice what they were dealing with when she was in on the fourth floor uh, in the administration. But how much of that is real? Because we know that some of this is still pandemic relief. And how do you think that changes the approach to how we spend it? I mean, there's always this tension, right? How much of today's money can you spend for tomorrow? How much of the budget um, of the recurring operating funds are we really going to be able to depend on in the future? And, you know, I think we've got some really um, talented folk in our um, legislative, you know, council committees. The LFC puts out these amazing reports where they're really tapping into all the analysis across the state. Um, and, you know, like we heard from Adrian, the oil and gas sector is strong. There's a lot of money getting pumped into the state coffers and we are seeing a lot of federal funding and expecting more federal funding. So I think you're going to hear this administration and you're going to hear certainly the Democratic Party leaders talk about how things are flush. And then I think on the other side, if things predictably play out, you'll have the conservative faction saying, whoa, slow your roll. We can't just keep spending money like it grows on trees or it shoots out of the ground. Right. 
Adrian, uh, we've about a minute left, a little more than a minute here, but wanted to get your thought as an environmental reporter. Uh, one of the issues that seems like it might be a little more rocky than others is the governor's push towards the hydrogen fuel technology, uh, which we also saw, even though she wasn't on the floor when she gave her speech, we still saw a bit of a protest and a demonstration uh, and, and some uh, things going on at the Capitol on Tuesday. What's your sort of outlook as, as more and more environmental groups seem to line up against this as the way to go or just continuing one toe in fossil fuels and one toe, one toe in environmental issues? Well, um, environmentalists seem to view hydrogen power or at least as it exists today as, as a fossil fuel, you know, requires natural gas to uh, combust, to create the energy and that, that causes emissions and pollution things like that. Um, what's interesting about the governor, they recently announced, um, you know, a memorandum of understanding with Los Alamos Sandia National Laboratory to actually try to develop a um, source of hydrogen that would be lower carbon or zero carbon. Um, and this seems like that would allay some of those concerns. Um, but presently, uh, I see reports that about 99% of U.S. hydrogen power does use natural gas, which is extracted or, or water. Um, you know, it's a chemical reaction that uh, separates the hydrogen from these from these elements. And, you know, that would still require extraction, could still cause pollution, and could still even use uh, hydraulic fracturing, you know, to get to that. So, yeah, there's a lot of concerns for the environmental groups. Um, I think uh, what the governor is saying, basically, that they want to develop new technology for this power source that would be lower carbon intensity. But uh, that that remains to be seen, yeah, and that's why they're concerned. And you mentioned water, something else we didn't hear a lot about, but I think we'll get to that in a little bit. Got to leave that there for now. But one of the biggest items we knew would come up in the state of the state address is crime. Here's Governor Lujan Grisham on the changes and investments she says will help make New Mexico a safer place. Again, it was a shorter speech this year for the state of the state, but a lot packed into it. And the undercurrent in all of this, it is a re-election year for a lot of lawmakers and also for the governor herself. So you see a lot of talk and hear a lot of talk about the accomplishments to date. You also hear a lot of reaching across the aisle. We'll have more on that here in a bit, but those are all important things during an election year. One thing you didn't hear a lot about was the COVID response, which is something that no doubt the challengers to the governor will be laying out uh, during the campaign season, but there's much more time to come on all of that. As you heard me tease there at the end of that last segment, the next big topic for the governor was something she's been talking about for weeks now, and that is comprehensive public safety measures. Uh, so dealing with the crime issue and also being careful not to paint this as an Albuquerque-only problem, but something statewide. And a big crux of this is uh, money to give raises and uh, incentives to retain police officers across the state. But there's also a courts aspect to this, other things as well that we're going to see play out in the next three weeks. Uh, the special session goes up until February 17th. Not a special session, sorry, just the regular 30-day session. Uh, we've got about three weeks left of that. So let's again hear first from the governor as she outlined the public safety agenda and then reaction from our line opinion panel. If we want to keep up our economic momentum, and we have to, we've got to get crime under control. I don't accept the argument that this is an issue 
in only one part of our state. I don't accept that any decision maker in this building would say that somehow this isn't their problem. We all have a role to play in keeping New Mexico safe. Public safety doesn't just exist on its own. We have to create it and support it and own it. So we need tougher penalties for the worst of the worst, the repeat offenders and those who have proven themselves to be a danger to our communities. I support rehabilitation and this administration has done a lot of innovative good work in that area. But at the end of the day, I stand with the families and communities who have been victimized unnecessarily by the violent criminals that this system needs to secure. The worst offenders, the most serious and dangerous criminals in our state need to be behind bars, simple as that. And we are going to pass a law this session that will keep violent criminals behind bars until justice can be done. We will put a wedge in the revolving door of violent crime in New Mexico. The safety of our communities cannot be up for debate. A smart on crime approach can work. In fact, it has worked. In my first year in office, violent crime went down for the first time in six years. We can regain that momentum when we make sure our local communities and public safety officers have the resources and support they need. So I'm asking the legislature for a 19% increase in the budget of the Department of Public Safety to fund innovative new crime fighting strategies and hundreds of new positions, including a 19% raise for our state police officers. And I am asking for $100 million to support hiring and retention efforts to get 1,000 more officers in place statewide as quickly as we can. And I am asking for those things because New Mexicans are asking for them. New Mexico is a state that respects and supports law enforcement officers. I reject the rhetoric from Washington and elsewhere that has made public safety a political battleground. This isn't about politics. It's about basic human respect for one another, respect from officers to the people they serve, and respect for officers from the communities they protect. If we have that, we can move forward unified in our desire to clean up the streets of the state, to keep violent criminals behind bars, and to assure every day that justice is done equally under the law. Crime has been the biggest public issue in the last few months, and the governor says she wants to treat it as such, calling for investments to give police officers major raises and to attract more recruits to join departments around the state. Governor Luan Grisham was sure to say this is a statewide issue, not just in Albuquerque. And Julianne, is that how it's perceived in Santa Fe? And how important is that framing, both from a public opinion standpoint and in terms of addressing and solving the problem? I mean, clearly the reason the governor needs to try to make the point that this is a statewide issue is because of the great perception that this is really an Albuquerque-centric issue. That people have the most concern about violent crime that's been taking place in Albuquerque. Um, and I think you hear that you know, rhetoric um, across the state. You certainly hear it in Santa Fe that, oh, things are terrible in Albuquerque um, and people aren't as willing to sort of look in the mirror about what might be happening right in their own backyard. 
you know, um, I think that being said, this the the tone of this whole section um, of her speech is really sort of off brand um, for this administration. You know, she's using these buzzwords that I think sort of make the the left leaning cringe. You know, she talks about the worst of the worst. She used this quote that she had this innovative new crime fighting strategy as if she's planning to, you know, unveil a great costume. Um, so I, I think that's kind of a, a, a marker for the type of messaging that she's, again, trying to appeal to maybe a, a more broad audience. And, and, and she is responding to those who are very concerned about the situation in Albuquerque. Adrian, how did that hit you uh, down there in Southeast New Mexico in terms of is money for officers gonna do the trick? you think, or are we looking at uh, some other things that need to be addressed as well? Um, well, in, you know, in Southeast New Mexico and, and, you know, other real parts of the state, we certainly don't have the levels of crime that you're seeing in Albuquerque, but it still does happen quite a bit. Um, I, I think down here, it's me mental health, it seems, is a real issue that, that leads to crime. You know, we recently had a pretty widely reported on a story about a uh, well, an 18 year old, I think, and Hobbs, who had left her baby in a dumpster. Um, and so, you know, is that an issue of enforcing the law? Is that paying officers more going to help situations like that? Or is it more funding for mental health and social services? Um, in Carlsbad, I know for sure we, I think we have less officers than we need. I think there's a lot of vacancies. Um, cost of living is pretty high in this part of the state. Uh, it's hard to retain officers, it's hard to have them living in. In the city, you know, they have to bring in a lot from places like Hobbs and Roswell. So more raises, you know, that could equal more officers and better enforcement. But I think at the core of it, um, you know, mental health is a real thing that leads to crime, in, at least in rural New Mexico. Yeah, we may get to that here in a bit because she did mention some increased funding for behavioral health as well. Don't know that it'll be sort of branded or attached to the crime fighting effort or not. But Crystal brings up another interesting point we've heard a lot, right, which is we seem to be robbing Peter to pay Paul here, where we've got a lot of police departments hiring up officers from other departments, which makes the situation worse for them. That's not fully just a, a money situation. Is there something else we need to be trying to think about here to especially to retain officers and not just shift them around from one part of the state to the other? Sure. Um, I was a little surprised that the governor didn't take the approach that crime actually needs to take a more holistic approach. Right. And I know that she mentioned a little bit about bond reform and bail reform or bond bail reform. Um, it, and, and, and I'm surprised that it, that it didn't lead with that. Right. It led with um, money going into officers and recruitment into training because those are the needs of some of these major communities that we're, we're talking about. And, and of course, you know, to, to what, you know, we, we had said before that, you know, the perception, it does very much seem like it's an Albuquerque problem, but I'm sorry, our major networks, including New Mexico PBS is based out of Albuquerque. So it's easy for us to hear what's going on on the, on the police radio and easily send a camera out there. Right. And so, but back to, you know, what is the what is the conversation about crime look like for the governor? Um, yes, she highlighted the specific efforts of, of putting funding in, but one of the other big topics in crime that we're surprised that we we didn't uh, we haven't tackled in the in the call um, per se is um, you know the New Mexico Statistical Analysis Center, um, a, a special unit put together by UNM, evaluated out of all the, uh, ten thousand arrests in Bernalillo County, what percent of them um, actually meant that um, a new violent offense had happened during the pre trial phase 
Um, and even though they say 6.3% of them were failures, 6.3% is still a statistic that, um, it, you know, it goes to say that the data can always go in one way or the other. Um, but 6.3% means more murders, more people, more people that were affected by by the bond system um, and the fact that they were released uh, during pre-trial. And then you, you talk about the, the prisons and the conversation about deprivatizing uh, prisons, et cetera. Um, I applaud the governor for making the approach that crime should be uh, partial. Uh, funding can be thrown uh, to uh, municipalities for public safety officers and mental health and behavioral health. We have to look at the holistic picture of, of what crime looks like and what is the cause, cause of crime and what is the cause uh, root causes that, that cause people to be in mental health situations that, that are obviously causing crime. Um, or even, um, you know, poverty. Poverty is the root of crime. You know, that's that's a, a classic debate um, in, in philosophy that we always have to think about, too. And, and it's not being addressed holistically. Those are, those are much harder campaign slogans. And as we've touched on, <laughs> <I know. laughs> a lot of folks up for re-election this year. So I imagine a lot of people see that's why uh, sort of my other notice, the thing I noticed to Julianne's original point was, we knew this was going to be a top priority. It was two paragraphs in the speech, so the tone and the actual length of the detail. But Julianne, policing only part of the crime uh, issue in the criminal justice system. Court's also key in all of this. And the governor says she wants to lengthen sentences for second-degree murder from 15 to 18 years, one of her goals. Also wants people accused of violent crimes in jail in trial until trial and by making defendants prove they aren't a danger. This is that. Um, pre-trial bond issue we've been talking about, but no real mention of funding increases for the court system. So without that, do you see any of these, even if they're passed, uh, being able to be uh, implemented? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a sticky wicket there that you're talking about. You know, we, um, to Crystal's point, we don't hear anything about the corrections industry in this speech. We don't hear anything about the underfunding for correctional officers, much less about the behavioral health and the actual health care that's lacking in our prison system. We hear nothing about programs for education or job training for people who are incarcerated. So those are all um, big parts of, you know, our quote unquote justice system that if we're going to keep steady with the course, we need to fund all of it and we need to think about all of it. Um, you do uh, not hear a lot of details in this speech about those specific crime proposals. Um, I think that there is, you know, a, a pretty complicated phrase getting thrown out there with respect to bail reform, which is the rebuttable presumption idea. You mentioned it briefly in, in, in your intro, but folks who are backing this are basically saying, um, right now, the most recent set of bail reforms in New Mexico reminded judges that they can only keep people out of jail during that pretrial period if they are a danger to the community or there are some other things that the prosecutors must prove. Um, again, the, the new sort of effort is saying it's not on the prosecutors, it's gonna be on the defendant to argue why they should be um, released. And, and we don't have a lot of specifics about what crimes, what charges this might be applied to. Um, and I think it really starts to rub again this against this other principle that's supposed to be fundamental in our judici judicial system, which is the presumption of innocence until proven guilty. So I think you are gonna see a big fight. Um, not everyone is on the same page about this and certainly not um, all of the people in the governor's own party. 
And this bail issue, we should say, came about because we knew people were sitting in, j in jail for a long time waiting for their court cases to even come up. And so lots to parse out there. Thanks again to you guys for the input there. Next up, health care. It's a unique problem given New Mexico's geography, but the governor says she has some plans to make access more equitable, even in rural areas. We always love to hear what you think about any of the things we talk about on the show. Best way to do that is to hit us up on social media, either Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram. We're in all those places. We check all those places. What do you think about the governor's state of the state address and her priorities and plans for this legislative session? Is she hitting the right note? Is there something missing? We'd love to hear what you think, and we may even include some of those comments in a future episode. So please do let us know what you're keeping track of, what you're following, and, and what you think about anything we talk about in the show. Going to dive right back in. This time, a bit of a, a hodgepodge for the governor, but really starting with a heavy focus on health care. Uh, and uh, this is a, a marked difference in that she spends a lot of time focusing on rural New Mexico and access to health care, which we know is a huge issue, has been for a long time. And again, she points out this is a moment in time where we can really do a lot to address that. Uh, part of this also includes an innovative approach she wants to take for caregivers to provide them financial support. And we're also going to hear some about veteran services and a, a new veteran's home uh, upgrades to it. Uh, so a lot tied up in here. And uh, again, we'll follow that up with some thoughts and opinions and analysis from our line opinion panel. We all want safe communities, and we all want healthy communities. This administration has made important strides. We have capped costs for life-saving medications. We've protected safeguards for those with pre-existing conditions. We've invested in affordable care for thousands of lower-income families. We have eliminated co-pays for behavioral health services. And we've begun the great task of rebuilding a mental health care infrastructure that was decimated. But still, too many people, especially people in the rural areas of our state, don't have timely access to the health care they need or access at all. Every community deserves high-quality care. I propose a new rural health care delivery fund that will provide bridge financing to communities that have been waiting for assistance to kickstart construction without massive upfront costs. State government can help fill these gaps. With interventions like these, communities like those in Valencia County are moving towards securing a brand new hospital after years of delays. And with investments like those I have proposed in my executive budget, we will put tens of millions of dollars into new behavioral health services, expanding access to treatment for substance abuse, suicide interventions, and more. New Mexicans call me about this issue more than almost any other, and we will answer that call. We can and must ensure that kind of service delivery is available throughout the entire state. We have the resources to do so. That means endowing our medical school with $10 million, ensuring that we keep our best and brightest here to provide care for New Mexicans after they graduate. That also means endowing our nursing school with the power of the state, ensuring more highly skilled professionals enter this all important field. 
and it means once and for all delivering the health care families in the rural parts of our state still desperately need. I propose a dramatic expansion of the state program that directly supports caregivers. What that means is we are going to pay families who are doing the work of taking care of their elderly loved ones, regardless of Medicaid eligibility. Let's call it Nemexicare, and let's make it a model program for the rest of the country. This is an investment in people that goes well beyond politics or any one politician. This is the kind of investment that can be and should be a lasting service, one that reflects our shared values as a state. In this state, we provide for and care for our parents, our grandparents, our disabled loved ones. This state government under my leadership will help provide for that care unequivocally. Caregiving is a full-time job. I know it firsthand. And we respect working people in New Mexico. So let's invest in the dignity of our elders and of their families by helping caregivers and those they care for stay in their homes with the financial support they need. On the same note, it is time that we build a new veterans home, a state-of-the-art independent and assisted living facility and program for those who sacrificed to protect our freedoms. The original building on the campus in TRC was built in 1936. I think it's time for an upgrade. So I am calling for $60 million, which we will leverage with an additional $60 million from the federal government to build the kind of modern facility our veterans and their families deserve. We're going to get it done. The state of our state is ready to move forward, ready to rise. We have all the tools we need. My vision is this, communities all across our state where families aren't worried about the next bill or their kid's future or a job market or a healthcare system that doesn't quite seem to work for them. My vision is in New Mexico where the founding ideals of this great country, equal opportunity and justice for all are made real and meaningful, where the pursuit of happiness is more than a phrase from a dusty piece of paper, something tangible, something everyone can actually feel. We can do it all. We have the finances. We're going to fund an unprecedented suite of new affordable housing programs at the state level. We're going to expand protections for voters because we believe in democracy and everyone's right to vote. I subscribe to an optimism that says big things are within our reach and blue skies are ahead. Although in all seriousness, I would take some snow right about now. COVID-19 has exacerbated every issue facing our health care system, there's no doubt, including access to care. The governor has been pushing for a new hospital in Valencia County for some time now. And uh, Crystal, let's start with you. How important is getting a new facility in that area? And then I'm going to follow up with you, Adrian, about uh, this is an area where she's definitely trying to connect with rural New Mexico and whether or not that's hitting. But uh, how important is that, do you think, Crystal, in terms of uh, a symbol, if nothing else? Uh, absolutely important, especially since Valencia County is a very fast growing um, area, especially with some of the infrastructure that's going in. Um, you you have to grow with the communities that are represented. And, and the way that I think about it is it's time, right? If UNM has the major health school and has a campus up in Valencia County, by all means, having a hospital there or medical resources, I think is, is very important and very vital. Um, I did want to take a moment, though, to kind of talk about some of the other parts that she mentioned in the clip 
about um, uh, caring for aging, um, aging elders, aging families, um, those that live in the home. One of the things I thought was really fascinating is that to me, that's major generational healthcare. That's major. Um, and what, we, what I mean by generational healthcare is the fact that she's thinking about how New Mexico is not just a one generation household anymore, not just two with your kids, it's three, it's grandkids, it's grandparents that are living with the homes. And that's very common in communities of, of people of color, right? Hispanic families, Asian families, black families, et cetera. And so the fact that we are actually getting financial resources or thinking about financial resources in the future, right now it might not make many much sense, but it's going to make sense in about 10 to 15 years from now when parents like mine are going to be in their late 50s, then they're going to be in their late 60s or the late 70s, whatever that might be. Um, so I think that uh, that's actually a really forward thinking idea um, that, that uh, of course, a, a person that has been um, a caretaker herself to better understand the needs of the, of, of the aging community or, or the senior elder care um, industry. Yeah. So. Adrian, again, uh, what Crystal just talked about, the, this hospital, she talked about more resources to help other rural communities uh, build up their healthcare infrastructures, sort of bridge uh, funding to get things going. Are those things that connect uh, in rural New Mexico where often that access, you have to drive a long way just to, to get to a doctor, there are limited amounts of doctors, does that hit home? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, we have pretty limited medical resources, you know, in Carlsbad and in places like it's, um, you know, we usually have to drive a town over to, you know, up to Artesia maybe for like the full hospital and for surgeries, things like that. Um, a lot of people end up driving to El Paso, frankly, or to Lubbock to go to the hospitals. So, yeah, I mean, it's pretty limited in this part of the state and, you know, anything they can do to, to increase access, I think would be helpful. It's been especially strange, you know, I mean, our ICU beds are people are, I know, being turned away. Um, you know, even people with COVID are being turned away, frankly, um, you know, going to seek medical care. So yeah. it, it is very much lacking in this part of the state and rural areas. Um, and I think that, yeah, that was definitely something the governor was trying to appeal to the rural communities. Um, it'd be nice to send a hospital down to Carlsbad too, just like in Berlin, I mean, that'd be great. <laughs> right. Uh yeah, and, and to add to that too, um, it puts the pressure off of the Albuquerque systems. Like Mayor Keller had said it once that most of the in-state travel that happens, and you look at nonprofits like the Ronald McDonald House, that mo a majority of the people that use these facilities or if they come into town, it's because they need access to medical care. So it does put off the pressure off of a big town like ours. The pressure that is always there too, though, is healthcare providers. She talked about some money for the medical school, uh, but do you think that is going to be enough to meet all these lofty goals she has for us, Julianne? Or is that something we really need to, to focus on even more to make sure that we're training and, and uh, graduating the doctors of tomorrow to help fill those spots? I mean, I think those incentives for um, the, the UNM medical program and for the nursing school are critical as you're thinking about the future. Um, but I think that these types of programs have been tried um, in the medical education you know, industry. They have been, um, you know, we've tried to incentivize 
folks to stay in communities that are identified as underserved, to go to the rural places to practice. And it's not just a problem in the medical school, it's a similar problem in the law school, um, that all these incentive programs can't convince people to like relocate to Roswell or, you know, pick a city that's, that's medically underserved. And I think that, um, there's got to be some more creative thinking to really create the shift that is necessary to close these kind of gaps. And I don't know that what's been introduced is really going to um, cover all that. It is a lot and things we've been dealing with forever. And we haven't even really talked about behavioral health, which we know is still something we're trying to rebuild in the state statewide. But we've only got a few minutes left and wanted to hit on what else was just glanced upon or not there at all. And uh, the voting measures, which we know she is a priority for her and Secretary of State Maggie Toulouse-Oliver, but also environmental. We didn't really hear much about that. I'm curious about that, Adrian. Again, we talked about the protests there. In fact, the only real mention of water planning was her uh, cracking a bit of a joke about how she would love to have some rain or snow. Uh, why do you think we're not hearing about that when we know our state engineer left at the end of last year in part because of a lack of funding? She and her budget proposal not necessarily aligned with the LFC about an increase in funding for the state engineer's office. Why is this not in here? And did she have an opportunity to elevate that in the public's mind? Well, I, I sort of behind the scenes, they're advocating for, you know, increased funding to energy minerals, natural resources departments, uh, adding compliance officers to oversee oil and gas. They're advocating for more funding for NMED, for watershed improvements, things like that. There's a number of bills that are pretty environmental in nature that would increase uh, regulation. So I, I think her agenda is clear um, when it comes to the environment, but in the speech itself, like, like we've been saying, you know, she was trying to kind of toe the line, stay in the middle. These, these sorts of topics are pretty controversial for, for, you know, red parts of the state, especially an energy producing region like ours. So people are afraid that transitioning away from fossil fuels, you know, could transition them out of jobs and out of economic prosperity and, and funding for, for our local rural, you know, energy, energy communities. Yeah. So, you know, I think that, that was, that was why we didn't hear about it, but uh, I think, it's clear that they're still pushing this, what I call a green agenda. <laughs> yeah, only about 30 seconds left, Julianne, but the same thing for you. Like, does the governor have a responsibility to elevate? If she's got all these bills, if it is a priority, does she have an, uh, an obligation to sort of elevate that in her speech so the state knows this is an issue? We're, we're in court with the, uh, the federal government in Texas and the Supreme Court about water. We are in deficits in the middle Rio Grande. Uh, does she miss an opportunity to really elevate that for the state as a whole as she sets priorities? And I think it's clear she missed that opportunity. Uh, the question of whether she's obligated to mention that, I think the answer is no. You know, this is a political opportunity for the governor. This um, speech, you know, kind of sacred space being held for the speech at the beginning of the session is, um, you know, it's kind of her time to shine and pick her issues. And I, I do think that, you know, the, um, the calculation of what she chose to talk about no mention of the Rio Grande, no mention of the drought, no mention of the you know ongoing problem with Texas. I think um, you know that's not totally unexpected. All right, great. Well, we got to move on from that, but we'll get right back to you guys in just a minute. But we end with the governor's larger philosophical message: a call for unity 
and a change in mindset. Wrapping things up is some comments that were straight out of the gate in the state of the state this year and really an underpinning of our entire message. Uh, along with being bold with the spending priorities, but also working together for the people of New Mexico, a bipartisan message that she really wanted to drive home, not to create the sports analogy or the horse race analogies around what happens in the roundhouse, a message for the public, also a message for lawmakers. And again, the Democrats not only hold the governor's office, but also control of both the House and the Senate. So it'll be interesting to see how that message is received and heard, and also how her priorities uh, are received, especially by the minority party, the Republicans. She's been careful. One of the things you heard talk about earlier was tax reform. So a cut to the gross receipts tax, which is something that surely Republicans will meet with open arms. Also, the Social Security tax. But uh, what about the crime uh, issues? What about some of these other priorities? Time will tell how the Republicans take that on and also try to take some ownership from that now that she has planted her stake in the ground there on these issues. But again, a message of coming together, working for the people of New Mexico and getting past politics. Also talking about how New Mexico is better at that than the national government right now. And always interested to see is that the way you see it, you see New Mexico working more bipartisanly than the national government, or you have a different take. Hit us up on social media. Let us know what your thoughts are on that. But here again, Uh, a bit of a wrap on the state of the state and the tone the governor is trying to set. I know there is a temptation to view today as the opening kickoff of a big game or the launch of some great battle. Some will describe it that way, but I encourage you to do what you can to resist the perception of a competition, to avoid feeding a plot line that would pit one team against another. This isn't the sports page. We're all here to do the people's business. It's a sacred thing. And we're all on the same team today, and in fact, every day. At the outset of every legislative session, I encourage my colleagues in this building to think about the people we are all here to serve. I think about their dreams, their hopes and fears, and I think about what service means, about what effective service can deliver for the workers and families all across New Mexico who were represented here in this building, the entrepreneurs and job creators, the seniors and students, the New Mexicans of every background and belief system. And no, we don't agree on everything, and we don't have to, but I believe that the values we share as New Mexicans still truly unite us. The desire to see our families grow and thrive, the willingness to work hard to enjoy what we earn, the optimism that tomorrow can and will be better than today for ourselves and for our neighbors. In the last three years, this legislature and this administration have gotten a lot done. We raised the minimum wage for the first time in a decade. We've guaranteed paid sick leave to every worker in the state. We made early education a key priority and have invested hundreds of millions into the future of our earliest learners. We've invested in new economic sectors and we've sent thousands more New Mexicans of every age and background to college for free, no strings attached. 
And I could go on. I could talk for a long time about the good work of the last few years. But we need to talk instead about what people are really feeling. The needs of this moment remain great. The grief, the loss, the volatility brought on by this hideous pandemic has wreaked havoc on the lives of every family, every American, every human being around the planet. And on top of that, inflation, a supply chain crisis, gridlock in Washington. It's all making it harder for everybody and especially regular working people to feel safe, to feel comfortable, to feel optimistic. And we all feel it. You heard a lot of unity language in this speech saying things like we're all on the same team. That's a clear call for bipartisan action. The governor followed that up with policy items sure to please her GOP colleagues, specifically those proposed tax cuts we talked about earlier. Adrian, is this an important strategy considering how quickly lawmakers will have to move in a 30-day session? Uh, yeah, I, I think they're going to have to, you know, what she really focused on is spending. They're really going to have to balance the budget. Um, she mentioned multiple times that they had unbelievable financial resources largely tied to extraction to the oil and gas industry, um, which is known to be volatile. And that was warned by the uh, Legislative Finance Committee, you know, in their recommendation in the cover letter from uh, Representative Lundstrom that um, we're riding this roller coaster of, of finances. So I think the message was, you know, we have the money now, let's spend it now before we get another bust. And it will be hard again, of course, when you're talking about tax cuts, to, to oppose that. Mm -hmm. There may be some folks talking about sure. how the gross receipts tax cut is not really going to have the impact that some people say. But in terms of that bipartisanship, Julianne, considering that the Dems control the governor's office in both uh, the House and the Senate, uh, do you expect them to take a different tact and sort of lead that way or lead by example? Or do you expect it to be the same old? I think we're going to see the same old. I mean, th those of us that get to cover these legislative sessions, we had three of them last calendar year. It seems like we have been in session more than out of session. And it seems like it always comes down to those last few days, those last few minutes before things happen. And the things that happen are fairly predictable. So will you see um, the GOP get new allies from the major party? I doubt it. Um, but I, I do think you're seeing the governor um, favor some policies and, and give wind to some policies that um, would otherwise go even shorter distances without that. For sure. Uh, again, 30 days is, is not a lot of time. And uh, it's a pretty aggressive uh, list of priorities. Crystal, do you think it's, it's realistic uh, what she's trying to get lawmakers to get through in this 30 days? Does this open up the conversation again about uh, maybe not professional um, paid legislature, but at least 45-day uh, legislative sessions and 90-day legislative sessions, drawing that out a little bit more? Yeah, you know, the even though that the theme, even though that the governor was trying to use the theme of bipartisanship in this state of the state address, I think that the overall three theme of the governor's current administ current administrative time has been aggressive and progressive. Um, she was able to tout about the fact that every single legislative 
priority that she's had since the start of her administration, she's been able to achieve as long as the industries that it involves um, is able to actually agree upon it. There's two years ago where the governor had talked about her call on um, on uh, New Mexico PBS on, on, on New Mexico in focus. And I said that year, I don't think it's going to happen that cannabis is going to be legalized because the industry wasn't ready. And sure enough, it didn't happen, but it happened the year before because she asked for a special session. Is she going to get things done? Yes. Is, she, is it going to be pretty? Absolutely not. Um, there is going to be a lot of collective bargaining or bargaining behind the scenes and putting a lot of things that um, some of our association individuals or, or nonprofit executives are not going to like, because in order for her, her to get things done, she's going to be aggressive and she's going to make, uh, unfortunately, really difficult decisions that will result in enemies. I think that there's, a, you know, there's, there's definitely work to be done across the aisle. Um, there's no doubt about that. The days of the Clint Hardin Republican is no longer there. Now it's the, the Trump type type of Republican that's that's in the House, especially with Representative Townsend, um, making really, really nasty comments uh, about the governor and her administration. But, you know, we, we just don't see that. We just don't see the fact that she's failing at anything. So I think that the the aggression, the the bulldog, the um, um, I, I, I always like the fact that, you know, I think the governor and I both have the Napoleon complex being so little, but being so loud at the same time. You know, I really applaud her administration for just getting things done. And, and, and I don't doubt that that's going to happen. Yeah, she did make a point too to obviously acknowledge the pain, fatigue, frustration we all have experienced uh, as a result of the ongoing pandemic. But is there anything she needs to do differently when it comes to addressing COVID-19? And again, especially considering whoever ends up getting the uh, primary nomination to run against her uh, next November will, will surely be hitting her over the head with uh, her COVID response uh, to date. But as we start into a new year, any opportunities any of you all see there? Uh, I'll start really quickly. I don't think that, I think it actually proved on the national level that it, COVID very much um, um, doesn't matter on uh, doesn't care about what political affiliation that you have that the health benefit and the, the decisions that you make are up to the individual person um, or region or municipality so I don't think that there's more that she could do um, other than provide resources and um, resources that we need that's what President Biden's doing now because he doesn't feel like he won the war on COVID-19 and I think that um, the governor is going to have to do the same thing. And Julianne, you mentioned in our Facebook Live, which everybody should go and watch, that uh, there's now movement underway to identify uh, communities in need uh, by zip code even for some additional COVID resources. Do you see uh, a, a harder push towards that sort of a, an effort here as we move into 2022? Certainly. I mean, I think New Mexico um, was somewhat unique in its approach to public health from the get-go and that this wasn't going to be just a first come, first served, the people who know get what they need and the people who don't know don't. Um, but I think you can you know, keep pushing that um, agenda. You can do more outreach to uh, folks who don't speak English. You can do more outreach in areas where people can't get treatment. So let's say you get COVID and you're trying to um, access treatment and it takes 11 days before someone calls you back. Um, that's still not good enough. And I think the other thing that's really important for the state to consider is that the healthier you were going into COVID, 
the better your outcomes are. And so those baseline healthy habits and healthy opportunities that we can give people in our state, those continue to be really important and shouldn't get left behind in this sort of emergency um, status that we find ourselves in. Appreciate that thought very much. Great way to end. Thanks again to all of our line panelists. As always this week, be sure to let us know what you think about anything we talked about uh, or covered on our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram pages. That's where you can find it and where you can respond. We encourage you to do that, and uh, we always appreciate the feedback. that'll do it for this episode of New Mexico and Focus, the podcast. I'm your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. Mentioned off the top that uh, host Gene Grant, because of the COVID exposure and not feeling super great, hopefully he will be back next week. He seems to be on the mend, nothing too serious, but out of an abundance of caution, we just made the adjustment this week, but hopefully all back to normal next week. We've got much more in store as the legislative session kicks into high gear. And also in our next episode, uh, we have an R-Land update. That's our environmental series with Laura Paskus. Recent conversation about wildlife corridors. Want to know what those are, why they're important, what the plans are for all of this? Tune in to our next episode. In the meantime, again... Let us know what you think about anything we talked about in this episode, anything you'd like us to cover in upcoming episodes. Social media is a great way to do that. You can also reach out on our website, NewMexicoInFocus.org. Again, encourage you to go and see all of the coverage of the state of the state, including the full speech, the reaction that we did on Facebook Live, and the annotated speech from reporters all across the state. But until next time, have a terrific weekend. Thanks for listening and stay safe, stay healthy.